Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Listen to the word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul here talks about a subject that is very vital to our church. And it's a subject we tend to be very confused about. The subject of grace. What is grace? We hear that word a lot. We speak that word a lot. It comes in our words, comes off our lips. We we have it in our sermons. It's in our books. It's in the name of our church, Grace Family Baptist Church. We use it in the name of everything. We use it in the names of our small groups and our Bible studies, our ministries. Grace, grace, grace. Do we even know what that word means? We say it without thinking it. I want to ask you today, do you know what you mean when you say the grace of God? Now, I've been looking around a little bit, and the most common definition I could find for grace is unmerited favor. This is true. But I want you to see where that definition is lacking. It doesn't speak about the God who shows grace. It doesn't speak about who it is to whom God shows grace. And it doesn't say anything about how the one comes to show grace to the other. So I have some questions for you this morning before we begin. Does God extend grace to everyone? Our culture would like to like us to think so. Whose choice determines who receives grace? Is it God's God's choice? Is it our choice? Is it both both choices, God's and ours? Is God's grace successful? Meaning, does he save everyone whom he shows grace to? Now, these are not unimportant questions. Some people will say these are theological questions. These are just questions of doctrine for people who like to talk about that sort of thing. After all, tell me, how, how many of you have heard the, uh, the saying, doctrine divides, but love unites? Has everybody heard that? These questions may be divisive at times. But my fear is, is that if we don't ask these questions... If we don't seek to answer them according to Scripture, we risk missing grace altogether. We might miss it. Before we get into our text today, I had a couple quotes I wanted to read you. Quotes to show you two different sides of the danger of what can happen when we are wrong on grace. This is what I fear for us if we miss God's grace. The first one is from Reverend Dr. Catherine M. Leeham. Speaking of God's grace, she says, quote, This is the grace which makes us disciples and is available as spiritual power for goodness sake. Jesus exhibited this kind of power and challenged us to do the same. The spiritual power demonstrated by Jesus and the saints who sought to imitate his cooperation with God is the energy which continues to heal the world, to bring it into more and more wholeness. This specialized grace is available to any who want to offer themselves in gratitude to enlist in God's vision for humankind and to discover our proper place in creation as we serve. This is the grace that makes us into earth stewards for Christ's sake, 
This grace is the assistance given us when we choose to become the people that God means us to be, giving ourselves over to whatever goodness we are meant to create, to redeem, to sustain. This kind of grace comes with the breathtaking awareness that we are participating in the very life of God and its awesome good. So did you catch that? God's grace becomes a spiritual power. It is an energy. One Jesus shared in and we can, one we can tap into as well. All we need to do is cooperate with God and we too can have access to this energy. God assists man to be what man decides he will be. Is that biblical grace? The second quote I wanted to read you is from a, a pastor named Don Martin. And he writes of who it is that receives God's grace. Quote, a study of those who enjoyed God's grace consistently reveals a certain type of person, one who was implicitly obedient, trusting, submissive to God's requirements and who had enduring fidelity. A required personality type to enjoy God's grace explains why, while God's grace is universal, still only a few are saved. What happens when we miss grace, when we are wrong on grace? Then salvation is reduced to a personality type. A certain kind of person who's able to accept God's freely extended grace. Do you see the danger, church? The danger is that if we miss grace, then we may very well miss the gospel entirely. Church, as we study the scriptures this morning, I want to urge you, do not miss the grace of God. You will remember that our scripture today falls in the midst of a section of scripture extending from Romans 9 to Romans 11. And Paul spent the first eight chapters of his letter to the Romans talking about the salvation that God has brought in Christ. He then takes this aside, this aside in chapter nine to 11, when he addresses a question that is real to his hearers and it is very dear to his own heart. And that is the question of the Jews. What about the Jews? He's writing to the church in Rome where Gentile believers are abundant and Jewish believers are few. And he writes of that great and glorious gospel of which he is not ashamed. Remember, we read this so many times. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, the Gentiles are being saved, yet the Jews. The Jews, by and large, have rejected the gospel. So Paul has to answer this question. Why have the Gentiles found salvation in Christ while the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, those to whom Paul said, those of whom, to whom, Paul says, belong the adoption, glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. They have rejected the Messiah God sent to save them. Now, Paul began, begins his answer in chapter 9, verse 6, with that classic statement, it is not as though the, the uh, word of God has failed. He then demonstrates how physical descent from Abraham does not in itself indicate that one is a child of the promise. Remember, Isaac was a child of the promise. Ishmael was not. He shows that what one does is not what makes one chosen of God. Remember Jacob and Esau, before they were both born, before either had done anything good or bad, he said, the older will serve the younger. And Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then even more, Paul claims for God his own right to show mercy to whom he will and to harden for judgment whom he will. Paul goes on from there to place unbelieving Israel. Remember the Jews, the Jews, they're the question. He places unbelieving Israel shockingly not in the place of the children of the promise, but he puts them in the place of Pharaoh, the ones hardened for judgment. He says that the Gentiles have obtained righteousness through faith, a righteousness they did not seek. 
Yet Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have not accepted the gospel of Christ. From there, in chapter 10, Paul goes on, goes on to talk about the gospel. He talks about that it is by faith that one is saved. It's not by works. It's not by following the law. It is by faith, by calling on the name of the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then at the end of chapter 10, like we heard, as we heard preached last week, Paul shows, he demonstrates that Israel has heard the gospel and they have rejected it. They are, in the words of Isaiah, a disobedient and contrary people. So it's in this setting that Paul then asks the question, has God rejected his people? Now, Paul's purpose in asking this question and answering it is twofold. He does want to continue to answer the question, what about the Jews? But he wants to do much more than that. Paul is going to use the situation of the Jews to, det- to demonstrate to his readers the very nature of God's saving grace. A grace that is notable for three things. It is undeserved. It is of God's choosing. And it is effective for salvation. Now, Paul's concern is my concern this morning. The believers in Rome, as they look at the situation of the Jews, are in danger of something. They are in danger of missing God's grace. Church, as we read this passage this morning, and as we read the Bible each and every day, we, too, are in very same danger. I'll endeavor to show you the grace of God that Paul expounds on. My charge and admonition to you this morning is that you do not miss God's grace. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Paul condemns the notion that God has rejected his people in the strongest language possible. He says, no, by no means. May it never be. It's the same response. He has used time and time again throughout the book of Romans to uphold the righteousness, the righteous actions, the, the, the just judgments of God. And with passion, he says to his readers that God is faithful. Our God is faithful. When we look around and see that God appears to have abandoned his people and his promises, we must ask ourselves, have we missed God's grace? Paul starts the process of pointing us back to the grace of God by first pointing to himself. Read on. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. For the church in Rome looking around and they're seeing little or none of the supposed children of Abraham present with them. And Paul reminds himself, reminds them that he himself is a Jew. He is both a, a, a physical descendant of Abraham and he's also found salvation in Christ. He's a Jew and he is a Christian. And that brings up a question. What is it that differentiates Paul from his Jewish brethren? That, after all, is the question that cuts to the heart of what grace is. You have the Jews who have rejected Christ and then you have Paul. Paul has found salvation in Christ. Why has one been accepted and the others have not? The Jews, the unbelieving Jews, have stumbled over Christ. They sought righteousness in their own works. They refused the call of the gospel to believe in Jesus. And the very question that comes up, their rejection, whether or not God has rejected them, is because of their apparent inability to humble themselves and turn to Christ. So we must ask, is Paul any different? We saw in the quote I read earlier that some claim that it is a difference of personality type that determines who receives God's grace and who does not. 
After all, if we believe that God's grace is equally given to all, then what other differentiating factor can we find? But the disposition of the heart of the one who hears the gospel call. Is this the answer? Is the difference between those who are saved and those who are lost the difference between a personality type? Is this what makes the difference between Paul and from his brethren according to the flesh? The Jews, let's look at them. The Jews were arrogant. They were proud. They were trusting in themselves and their own righteousness before the law, and they were disobedient to the call of Christ. Let's look at Paul. What was Paul? So was Paul humble? Was he obedient? Was he submissive? No, Paul was none of these things. He was everything the Jews were and more. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts 22. We're going to listen to Paul talk about himself. We'll start in verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the, brother, to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was zealous for God, but it was not according to the knowledge of Christ. He had heard the gospel. Remember, he'd heard it preached from the very lips of Stephen himself before he was stoned. And in the words of Christ, Paul was found kicking against the goads. He was as disobedient and contrary as the worst of his people. Yet... Despite all that Paul was and all that Paul did, God chose in his grace to save him. Remember what we said of grace. It is undeserved. Paul's testimony demonstrates how God's grace is undeserved. As Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not only is grace undeserved, it is also of God's choosing. Paul speaks of this in the first chapter of the Galatians when he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. God chose Paul. God set Paul apart. God called Paul. Grace is always of God's choosing. There's a third aspect of grace that I mentioned here. That is that grace is effective in salvation. It is efficacious. And I want to explain this a little bit before we look at it in Paul. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine a father. A father and his two-year-old son, and they're walking through a parking lot. And this is a busy parking lot. There are cars whizzing back and forth, taking no notice of who's there. So there's a father with his beloved son, and they're walking, and a little boy, that little toddler, looks out and sees something shiny, something he wants. And he races out to get it, right into the path of the speeding truck. This truck is barreling down death on him. And his father calls to him, but he does not listen. Now, I'm take a side. I know all of your children would immediately listen to your voice, come back to you. But let's just say this is a, a wretched, disobedient child. And he just 
ignores his father's instruction and runs. It would seem that this boy has no hope. That this boy is lost. Except that I failed to mention one thing. When this loving father stepped out of his car with his beloved son, he put a vice grip on his son's arm. He knew his son's disposition. He knew his disobedience. And he knew the danger that they would face. And he determined beforehand that he would preserve his son. Now, the picture is imperfect. But when I say that God's grace is effective in salvation, I mean that it will accomplish that salvation. His arm is stronger than any man's. His love is unfailing for those he has chosen to be his own, and his salvation is sure. We can see this in the life of Paul. Jesus Christ came to a man lost in his sin, railing against God, persecuting his people, and saved him by grace. He knocked him off his donkey. He blinded his eyes. And it says he appointed him to know God's will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Paul puts himself forward as an example of God's faithfulness to his people and as a testimony to the grace of God, a grace that is undeserved. It is of God's choosing. It is effective for salvation. Yet Paul is one man, a single example, just the beginning of the picture of grace that the apostle is starting to reveal. Paul continues in our text. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There is a distinction that enters here. (coughs) A distinction that is further fleshed out as we read. It is a distinction between those who are chosen by God and those who are not. Between those Jews who are God's people and those who are not. When Paul references those whom he foreknew, he is referencing the sure and certain action of God on behalf of those he has chosen. Flip back with me a little bit to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul says that God will accomplish salvation for those he has chosen. He has foreknown them. God's grace is of God's choosing. He will not reject them. God's grace is effective. But Paul, how can we reconcile what we see? God's people are in utter rebellion. You've been saved, but there are few else. How can this not mean the rejection of God's people? Paul answers this, and he answers it by looking to the history of God's people. Specifically, he looks to the history of the remnant among God's people. In the preservation of the remnant, God, Paul shows that God, is, that God is showing that his true people are only those chosen by grace. And he will save those people. He sends us back to 1 Kings. So go ahead and flip back there for me. 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to remind you where you are, we are a little bit. You, uh, you all have heard the story. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they meet on the mount, mountaintop. The prophets of Baal are calling out to Baal. They're cutting themselves, dancing around. And then Baal, of course, does not answer. He's dead. He's an idol. 
He cannot answer. And then, then uh, Elijah, Elijah calls on the name of the Lord, and God sends fire from heaven. Elijah then kills all the prophets of Baal. He slaughters them all. But when Jezebel hears about this, she says, I am going to do the exact same thing to Elijah. And Elijah, he cuts uh, tail and runs. He's running, and that's where God finds him. And that's where we have this conversation that Paul talks about, the references in Romans 11. <coughs> God comes to him and asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Look at me in verse 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. (coughs) Elijah cries out, God, your people are unfaithful. Look at everything they've done. Not one of them follows you. Will you not bring judgment down on them? He looks an awful lot like Paul here. We've got one guy who's faithful and no one else. Is Paul a unique case? Is Elijah a unique case? What of God's chosen people? Let's look at God's reply in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shabbat of Abel Menhola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God tells Elijah that he will bring judgment upon the idolatrous people of Israel, but he also promises something else. God promises to save a remnant of Israel. It is a remnant, in Paul's words, chosen by grace. Now, we would be tempted to think that God saves the 7,000 because of their faithfulness. That is where we miss grace. There's a, it's a question. It's a question of cause and effect. What is the cause and what is the effect? It's God's people, people's faithfulness. Is that the cause and the effect is that God saves them? Or is it the other way around? Is it God's decision to save his people, which results in their faithfulness? Paul says there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. God's grace is unmerited, not for anything the remnant has done. Grace is of God's choosing. I have kept for myself, God says. And grace is effective. These 7,000 will have not and will not bow the knee to Baal. God's choosing led to their faithfulness and their faithfulness. It's a sign. It's a sign of God's choosing. We spoke earlier of what it is that distinguishes the people of God from those who are not. What differentiates the elect from those reserved for judgment? It's not that the one is more holy and more righteous or has, uh, you know, a, a more compliant personality type. The grace of God is the only distinguishing factor. That remnant who were preserved in Elijah's day were accepted and saved because they were chosen by God in his grace. And as Paul goes on to say, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
The elect of Elijah's day were chosen by grace. The elect of Paul's day are chosen by that same grace. So how can Paul say that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew? Because those he foreknew are those he has chosen in grace. They are the believing remnant of the Jews, not all the Jews, but the remnant. They are true Israel, the true descendants of Abraham, born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. God is faithful to his people because those whom he has chosen by his grace are his true people. Now, I want you to step back with me a little bit and look at what Paul has done. Paul has taken a story from the Old Testament and he has read it in a way that is different than we read it. See, when we read our Bibles, especially when we read the Old Testament, we aren't looking for grace. We're looking for law. We want ten easy steps to a happy life. We want five things we can do to be successful. We want a list to follow so God will be pleased with us. See, when we read a story like the story of Elijah, we automatically start looking for what we can do. Let's see, don't bow down to Baal. Don't bow down to idols in our lives. Follow God and he will save us. But when Paul reads the story of Elijah and the remnant saved, Paul sees a story we never would see because Paul gets grace right. Church, when we get grace right, then the way we read the Bible and especially the way we read the Old Testament will be changed. Look with me at the consistent pattern of Scripture. God in his grace always saves a remnant from judgment, a remnant in the midst of judgment. Look at the account of Noah. God brings judgment. A flood upon the entire world, yet he saves, he chooses one man and his family to be saved. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot alone is saved. There's the account of the Israelites in the wilderness when they reject God's command to take the promised land and he declares that they will die in the wilderness. Yet he preserves a remnant, Joshua and Caleb, to bring that generation's children into the land. Now, we could go on and on because this is the story of Scripture. When we read these stories, we're looking for law. How can we be like those who are, who are saved? How can we imitate the ones who've done good? How can we avoid doing the bad things, especially the ones of those who are condemned? But Paul says, no, do not miss grace. The remnant has always been chosen by grace. When we see these stories, we must see grace, the grace Paul teaches of, a grace that is undeserved, that is of God's choosing, that is effective in salvation. Okay, church, I want to do a little practice this morning. I want us to look and see if we, can, if we are starting to get what Paul gets, what Paul is putting forward here. Let's look at the book of Ezekiel. Everybody find the book of Ezekiel. It's there in the midst of the prophets. For Daniel. Can we read the book of Ezekiel and get grace right? Okay, this is the question. Let's start. Let, let, I'm going to give you a short intro here. This book begins, we find Ezekiel. He's among the exiles in the land of the Chaldeans. Is, you know, the, the, you know, there's the, the separated kingdom. Israel's been judged. They're exiled. Judah still remains. Jerusalem still remains somewhat not exiled yet. And this is when God comes upon Ezekiel and gives him a vision. He stands before the throne of God and God speaks to him. And he sends him as a prophet to pronounce warning of judgment upon Israel. 
God gives Ezekiel vision after vision of the sin of Israel, and he gives him vision after vision of the destruction that is to come, the judgment that is to come. He sees the city of Jerusalem utterly destroyed and the people of God killed by the sword. And in the midst of these visions, Ezekiel cries out to the Lord. Let's go to chapter 9, beginning at the very beginning of chapter 9. Then he, God, cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen and a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood before the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell on my face and cried, Ah, Lord, God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? We should recognize this cry. It's the cry of Elijah. There is none left. It's the question of Paul in Romans 11. Will God abandon his people? Can we see grace? Let's look. Let's listen. God's reply to Ezekiel. Seems at first to go, go from bad to worse. Then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare. Nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Yet wait, there's more, a little word, a comment made almost without in passing. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought word back saying, I have done as you commanded me. The man clothed in linen purposefully makes his way from the streets of Jerusalem, marking on the forehead each one to be saved. Church, will we miss it? Do we see a group of Jews whose personality is such that they groan over the sin that is going on around them? That's what we want to see. That's what our flesh desires to find. But let's not miss grace. This story, like that of Elijah, is the story of God's grace, his choosing of a remnant. Turn with me to chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look with me. Let's look and see God's grace. God's grace is unmerited. The remnant that God saves has done nothing to deserve grace. Rather, they have profaned his name. They are unclean. They're worshipers of idols. But for the sake of his own name, God shows mercy and extends undeserved grace. We see that the graces of God's choosing, God sent the linen-clothed man to mark their foreheads. Even more, God determined to wash them clean, to take out their filthy hearts of stone, to place in them new hearts of flesh. The remnant could, do, could not do anything in themselves to bring about this grace. Men with hearts of stone do not seek to remove them. No more than dry bones seek to stand and take on flesh, or that the dead call out from the grave requesting to be made alive again. Grace is of God's choosing. And we see that God's grace is effective in the salvation of those he chooses. God will cause his people to be clean. He will give them hearts of flesh. He will put his spirit within them. And he will cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Like the father with his two-year-old son, his arm is strong. His love is unfailing. And his salvation is sure for the one he chooses to call his own. We can see that the nature of God's grace is testified by all of Scripture. Look at Jesus' words to the disciples on the night of his betrayal in John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In the same way, he did not choose. We did not choose him, but Christ has chosen us. And if he has chosen us, then he will accomplish those things that he has chosen us for. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's hear Paul again speak of grace as effective in salvation for those he has chosen. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He blesses us. He chooses us. He predestines us. This is grace. The reason we have such a hard time seeing grace in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is because our flesh is hardwired for works righteousness. We want to work out our own salvation. We want to make it effective. We want, we want the works we do to gain us salvation. We hear Paul talk of God's choosing and our flesh demands there must be some basis of God's choosing. There has to be. 
God must have seen something in me to cause him to choose me over all the others who have not believed. Surely he saw my sincerity, my faith, my humility, my repentance. Paul says no. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace cannot be on the merit of the one receiving its benefits. Otherwise, it is not grace. The truth is, church, that it is this aspect of grace that is of God's choosing that should give us any hope of salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If God's choosing were based on anything we had done, we would be lost. Even the simple act of gathering our will and placing our faith in Christ would require that we seek after God, that we seek Christ. But the word of God says no one seeks after God. If it is not of God's choosing, then we have no hope. We are as lost as the unbelieving Jews, trying to make ourselves right in God's sight by creating our own righteousness. But if God, in his grace, chooses to save sinners such as we are, then we have hope. Look with me back at Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're dead in our sins, and the only desires we chose to follow were what kind of desires? They were sinful. We would not, we could not, we would not seek for God. And yet God, look at the next verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the nature of God's saving grace. Do not miss it. It is God choosing to extend his love to undeserving sinners, to those dead in sin and unable to do anything to save themselves and make them alive with Christ. Grace is unmerited. It is of God's choosing and it is effective for salvation. Now, there's one there's one necessary point, one further point that we can't miss. When we speak of God's grace today, because we don't want to miss grace. And that is the one in whom all God's grace toward man is accomplished. That is Christ. John 1, 16 and 17, speaking of Christ, says, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace only comes through Christ. Look back with me at something we read before in Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose us, but he chose us in Christ. 
And in Romans 3, 23 through 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is ultimately seen and accomplished in the sacrificial work of Christ, giving himself up for those who did not deserve him. He is the true Israel, obeying the law where the nation had failed. We experience a grace we do not deserve because Christ has merited it for us. Grace is of God's choosing, and he chose us in Christ. Church, we were chosen in him. We were foreknown in him. And though the wrath of God was ours because of our sin, that wrath has fallen on him. We cannot speak of the grace of God without mention of our Savior. I told you earlier that my desire today was the desire of Paul. That you would not miss the grace of our God. Grace is not some nebulous energy that's available to us if we just do the right things. Grace is not some undifferentiated kindness toward every man. It requires some action from within us to take hold of. Grace is salvation extended to those who don't deserve it, who are chosen by God. Not because of what they've done, but for his good pleasure. And grace is sure it is effective. God will not reject those whom he foreknew. I told you earlier the dangers of the dangers of getting grace wrong. But what happens when we start to get grace right? What ought to be our response to these great and glorious truths? Let me start by telling you what our response should not and must not be. It must not be to fill ourselves with pride. There's this picture, this caricature of the man who thinks he's chosen by God and he looks down with contempt on those who aren't. This man is living a lie. He claims he believes that salvation of God's choosing, but his pride shows what he truly believes. That God chose him because God liked what he saw. God's God's choosing is this badge he wears to declare to others that he was worth saving. This man has missed grace. He doesn't understand the gospel. Another tendency for those who begin to learn the truths we've explored today is the tendency toward haughtiness. A spirit of superiority over those other Christians who do not believe or understand grace as we do. We can find ourselves looking down on our brothers proud of our own understanding of these doctrines, this tends to express itself in argumentation. We enjoy debating others, our brothers. Not really in order to lead them to truth, but so we can demolish their arguments and show that ours are better. We want everybody to look at us and say, wow, he really gets it. Guard yourself, church. If you see pride starting to creep in, you may be missing the very grace you claim to have found. Think of your response to what we've learned today. Think of the response that you've had um, in terms of posture. When you start to hear of God's grace, of God's choosing, does your back go up? Does it straighten a little bit? Do your shoulders go back? Does your chin go up a little bit? Take care. I fear you may be missing grace. Our posture, when we truly see God's grace, should be, we should fall flat on the floor. We should fall on our faces crying out, oh dear God, what have you done? Who am I 
that you should save me. That Christ, the very son of God, should die for me. Our response should be brokenness. We should also be filled with gratitude that God would choose to save us when there is nothing, nothing in us worth saving. Rather than being prideful, we should be humble. We should be a people who are growing in humility each and every time we catch a glimpse of God's grace in the Old Testament and in the New. So I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, is that what others see? Is that what you see in yourself? When your family or your friends or your neighbors, perhaps those who do not share your understanding of grace, when they think of you and their interactions with you, their discussions with you, is humility what comes to mind? Is that what comes to mind when you think of yourself? If not, repent. Turn back and find that grace. And finally, if we get this, if we get grace, as Paul lays it out here, then we should become more and more passionate for the name and glory of our God. Remember, God said to the remnant in Ezekiel, it was not for their sakes, but for his name that he was about to act. Our primary concern, our passion should be for God's name, for his glory, for the name of his son. This will lead us to ever increasing worship, exalting Christ's name. It will lead us to ever fervent evangelism, proclaiming the gospel of Christ so that others, by God's grace, will be saved. And even that to the praise of his name. Now, maybe that some of you here today do not know the grace of our God. You do not know Christ and his salvation. Maybe you've even heard the gospel before, heard it from friends or family, maybe even heard it from this pulpit before. Yet you're holding back, thinking that coming to Christ is something you can do on your own terms. Maybe I'll accept the gospel someday. It's my choice. It's up to me. When I'm ready, I'll take God up on his offer. My friend, do not miss the grace of God. Do not get the gospel wrong. You've heard today that salvation is of God's choosing and not man's. Do not persist in your selfishness. Know that God is the only one who can save you. Let the knowledge of God's grace that you've heard today cause you to give up every hope of bringing yourself to salvation. Call on Christ now and call on Christ today. Now, that's for those who hold onto their own ability to choose God. But there is a ditch on the other side of the road. There's a danger that someone might hear that grace is of God's choosing. He might hear that grace is unmerited, undeserved. That's not in man's power to turn his own sinful heart to seek after God. And he might decide that he has to somehow figure out if God has chosen him. And then he can believe on Christ. Forget the call to believe. I need to figure out if I'm one of the elect. If God has foreknown me, then I'll repent and believe. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the power to do that. The problem with that is that you're still trying to take salvation in your own hands. You are resisting, ignoring the call of God to repent of your sins and believe on Christ because you think that God's choosing is only adequate if you can see it. It is not given to you to try and figure out if you are chosen of God. What is commanded of you is to cry out to Christ for salvation. The word of God to you is clear. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Turn from your sins, repent and look to Jesus. 
He is the only one who can save you. He died on the cross, taking the wrath of God on himself for the sins of those who could not bear that wrath. He was raised up from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. He commands all who are thirsty to come and drink, all who are hungry to come and eat. If you realize your thirst and if you realize your hunger and if you see that Christ is the only one who can satisfy, guess what? That is what it looks like to be called by God, to be chosen. When a man is called out from his sin, he desires what he never desired before to seek after God. So call out to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Do not wait. Let's finish by listening to some of the last words written to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you today. Stand in awe of your grace. Of your grace that is. So undeserved. We're broken and humbled that you would show us such grace to give up your very son to death for us. A people who are wretched. Father, we had no hope. There's nothing in us worth saving. And everything in us worth destroying. But that's what's so amazing about your grace. Which you have sown us in Christ. I pray, dear Father, that we would leave this place with an growing understanding of your grace. And that each of us, every time we start to miss your grace, you would open our eyes, humble our hearts, and by your spirit, reveal Christ to us afresh. In the name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen.